Before we turn our attention this morning to our time of study, let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us and bless our time. Uh, Pray with me, would you? Father, what a privilege it is to assemble together as your people, to sit under the tutelage, to sit under the teaching of your sufficient, authoritative word. God, we confess this morning that you have spoken, that all scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful, it's profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, uh, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God, I pray as we take the next five weeks and we work our way through uh, the five solas of the Reformation, literally five doctrines which rocked the evangelical landscape the spiritual Christian landscape of the world as we know it today, that you would give us a passion for your word. God, create in us, fan a flame in our hearts, a hunger for your word, a desire for you to know you, to love you, to serve you, to honor you, to praise you, to worship you, to share you with a lost and dying world around us. God, we ask these things that your son, Jesus Christ, might be honored and praised. We pray these things in his name. Amen. I want to encourage you to stand this morning if you have the ability. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17 will be our text for this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pins the following words. But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work." Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. As we embark this morning on our five-week study through the solas of the Reformation, we are going to concentrate our time around that first doctrine, that first sola, sola scriptura means the Word of God alone, or the Word of God only. As a matter of fact, the rest of the doctrines that we will study in the weeks to come are all the result of, or are all the fruit of, the pinnacle, foundational doctrine of the authority of God's Word alone, only, exclusively. As we ramp up this morning... And we think about how these doctrines came to be, how these doctrines came into play. It's probably helpful for me to back up just a little bit and to give you a little bit of the history of the Reformation. Particularly, though there were many characters, particularly a brief history overview or synopsis of one figure in Reformation history. Born in 1483 to parents of peasant lineage, young Martin Luther had a humble upbringing. He grew up in Eisleben, Germany, where his father Hans worked as a miner and an ore smelter. 
And Hans, his father, knew that mining, uh, the mining business was difficult, that it was hard work. He wanted his son to pursue better. He wanted his son, Martin, to pursue a degree, to pursue an education in law. And Luther himself, as a matter of fact, had every intention of studying law until one afternoon in 1505 when Luther was caught in a thunderstorm on his way from his village to a neighboring village. And the account or the record tells us that a bolt of lightning struck so close to Luther that it so terrified him that he cried out in panic to one of the Catholic patronesses of minors. And he said, Saint Anne, save me and I'll become a monk. Save me and I will enter into the monastery. Two weeks later, much to his parents' disappointment, Luther entered the Augustinian monastery in Erfurt. Life in the monastery was not easy for Luther. As a matter of fact, it was incredibly difficult for him. He wrestled, Luther wrestled intensely with guilt and with shame. And in an attempt to make it all go away, Luther had the idea that he would just live out this ultra-rigid set of rules. I mean, it's said that Luther would fast for days upon uh, end, uh, that he would sleep outside in freezing temperatures, uh, all, all to, uh, to, to discipline his body, thinking that in some way this might, apple- might appease or please God. But yet his guilt remained, driven by a profound sense of his own sinfulness before God's majesty. Luther pushed his body to almost the breaking point, but his guilt still remained. Later in life, Luther commented about himself, I may say that if ever a monk got into heaven by his sheer monkery, it was I. But no rule keeping, no amount of penance, and no soothing words from others could quench Luther's conviction that he was a miserable, doomed sinner. He said, my situation was was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in my conscience and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage or would satisfy a holy God. Therefore, or as a result, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather I hated and murmured against him. So the words of Luther as a young monk In 1507, Luther was ordained as a priest, and he started studying theology at the University of Erfurt. During his studies, he came into contact with the ideas of humanists, and he embraced their slogan, ad fontes, or back to the source. For Luther, this meant a a getting back to the original languages that the Bible was written in. He began to study Hebrew and Greek. He received his doctorate in theology in 1512, and Luther was therefore, or after that, assigned to be the chair of biblical studies at the recently established Wittenberg University. And it was there that he began to pour over and teach the scriptures. Not a believer yet. Here he is, he's already gotten degrees in theology, and now he's teaching. Unconverted at this point, not a believer at this point has a doctorate in theology already. And it was there, at the Wittenberg University, that he began to pour over, teach the Scriptures. And as he did, he became fascinated with Jesus' words from the cross. My God, my God, how 
How is it that you have forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Luther began to realize that Jesus shared man's estrangement from God in order to assume the punishment required for sin. And this, for the first time, brought an entirely new picture of God to Luther's guilt-laden, restless soul. In 1515, studying through Paul's letter to the church at Rome, Luther came across Romans 1.17, probably familiar to most of you. Paul writes, for in it, that is in the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther poured over that one verse, and in God's wisdom and God's sovereignty, God's grace and God's mercy, God used Romans 1.17 to miraculously convert Luther's heart. He became a new, a new creation, became a believer upon studying Romans 1.17, that the righteous shall live by faith. Luther recounts his own conversion. Listen to this. Luther writes, night and day I poured, I poured myself out until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped, or then I understood that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole scripture began to take on new meaning to me, Luther said. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet, Luther writes. You see, Luther began to see clearly what he could not see clearly before. Namely, that a man is saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But this new understanding of Scripture stood vehemently in contrast with the Roman Catholic Church's doctrine of justification by faith and by good works. The implications of Luther's discovery and his subsequent conversion would be the spark that lit the flame of spiritual reformation that crossed, that literally crisscrossed the globe. Let me say just a few things here. You might want to jot a note down here, a note or two down here, about the early erosion of biblical authority. Specifically, or in particular, it was the Catholic Church's sale of indulgences that brought Luther to a, boiling, to a boiling point. And for those of us who didn't have a Catholic upbringing, or, or for those of us that don't have a Catholic background, an indulgence is the full or partial remission for sins. It's the full or the partial remission of the punishment for sins. You see, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, has long held that there is a treasury of merit, or there is a storehouse of grace, that was accumulated by the, by, the, by the merit of Christ and that this grace can now subsequently be parceled out for the appropriate contribution to the church. In other words, repentance is for sale. We can now purchase repentance. Sin can be covered. Matter of fact, individuals can also purchase indulgences to liberate their loved ones from the flames of purgatory. The church in Luther's day 
uh, would oftentimes preach this pithy jingle. As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. That was their encouragement to individuals to give. Is as you give, you can purchase the remission of sin for you, but you can also purchase the remission of sin for your loved ones who have already died, who are suffering in purgatory. Just put some change. Just contribute to the coffer. And as soon as that coin rings on the bottom of the coffer, a soul from purgatory springs. The problem is, is that this thinking stood in direct contradiction to Luther's new understanding of justification by faith alone. We can't purchase repentance. And by the end of 1517, Luther had had enough. And so the unofficial launch of the Protestant Reformation takes place on October 31st, 1517, when Luther, an obscure Augustinian monk, nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, something that you need to know, friends, is to nail something to the church door in Luther's day was akin to posting something on the community bulletin board. These 95 theses or these 95 arguments were written against the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church and they also served as an invitation to public dialogue. Luther argued that the Pope did not have power to remove sin or its penalty. You see, friends, the the Roman Catholic Church has not historically denied the authority of Scripture. They have not denied it. What they have done, sadly, is they have taken the authority of the Pope, who they would say comes in the succession of apostles from Peter, and therefore when the Pope speaks, sitting on his throne, he speaks authoritatively. In other words, his word stands on equal ground as the written, recorded revelation of Yahweh. The Catholic Church has not historically denied the authority of the Scripture. They have just put the authority of man on an equal playing field as the authority of Scripture. This is the point where Luther comes along and he says, this cannot be so. Scripture alone has authority. And by definition of its authority, every other authority stands in submission to it. There is not a pope, there is not a council, there is not a pastor, there is not a teacher, there is not a Bible study, there is not a sermon that does not bow before the authoritative word of God. God's word has the first word and God's word has the last word. End of sentence. This is what Luther took issue with, primarily as the Protestant Reformation was launched. Interesting to note that Luther's 95 theses were taken down from the church door by his students. They were copied and printed on the newly invented printing press and they were distributed all throughout Germany and soon thereafter all throughout Europe. And this this action was the spark that lit the Reformation movement aflame. You know, it's interesting In the word Protestant, you hear the word protest. 
And in the word reformation, you hear the word reform. And those are two words that accurately describe their good descriptions of the spiritual shift in tide as Luther and many others took a stand for the authority of Scripture and the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was a protest. You cannot speak authoritatively if what you are speaking is in direct contradiction to the revealed word of God. And so Luther and a whole slew of other men and a whole slew of ladies throughout, throughout Reformation history took a stand to reform the church, literally to bring reform back, reformation to the authority and the sufficiency of God's word. The central nerve of the Reformation was the authority of Scripture. That was the central nerve of the Reformation. The clarification of the other doctrines came as a result of holding high the sufficiency of God's Word. And and what came from that was the development of the solas. Five solas. Sola meaning only or alone or solely. We have sola scriptura. God's word alone is authoritative. We have sola gratia. That is by grace alone. Sola fide. By faith alone. Solus Christus. Through Christ alone. And soli deo gloria. To the glory of God alone. The principle The principal overriding, overarching issue, the central nerve of the Reformation was the sufficiency and the authority of the Scripture. But then, the question came, in light of that, in light of the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture, how can man be made right with God? How can sinful man be made right with God? Luther, from his own study, from his own conversion, became convinced that justification, being made right with God, came on the basis of faith alone in Christ alone. That was in opposition to the Roman Catholic Church that said, faith plus your works, faith plus your merit saves you. And so from sola scriptura came The answer to the question, how can sinful man be made right with God? And we look to Scripture to answer that question. Not to the traditions of men, not to the traditions of the church, not to church councils. We look to the authoritative Scripture to answer that question. And this is what Scripture says, that man is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Those were the core commitments that came out of the the Reformation movement. Stephen Lawson says this, a pastor that I'm thankful for. He says, the Reformation was in reality a revolution that would forever alter Western civilization and through it, the rest of the world. The Protestant Reformation held monumental effects upon which every aspect of the world, that is, socially, politically, economically, educationally, were affected. But nowhere was the Reformation's effect felt greater than it was religiously and spiritually. For at its heart was a a reformation of the preaching of the Word of God and a reestablishment of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, a 
a slogan or a theme that came out of the Reformation was the Latin phrase post tenebrae lu, or lux, which means after darkness, light. You see, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the church had, had lie in spiritual darkness, moving away from the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture and adding to God's Word by the authority of men. And when Luther and a whole host of others came along, by God's grace, the emergence of light, letting God's Word be authoritative, shed light on the rest of the world. After darkness, light. Well, what happens after this world-changing, theological shifting reformation? Where have we gone? Where have we been since, friends? Well, we've moved, and this is an abbreviated history here, but we've moved from the reformation down through the corridors of time to the Enlightenment period. This is that 18th century period. And the Enlightenment has oftentimes been referred to as the age of reason. The age of reason. A lot of where we are today, friends, is a result of this 18th century age of reason. You see, the Enlightenment individual believed that he could have or she could have access to pure human reason, which would allow him or her to tear down all the traditional church myths, so to speak, that had only served to oppress societies in ages past. The Enlightenment man confidently declared to the world that he had come of age intellectually and that it was now time to liberate himself from the assumptions of Christianity by means of pure reason, by means of pure thinking, he was now capable of discovering truth for himself, and in doing so, he would pioneer a new path to enlightenment. Hey, where's that gotten us, friends? Reason was the golden ticket to a life of total objectivity, free from bias. With the elevation of reason as a sufficient source for human knowledge and achievement, there was a corresponding rejection of the Bible's necessary sufficiency and authority. You see that? As, as we dismiss the Bible as being necessary for light, for life, and for godliness, then we let our own reason float to the surface. And that gets us in a whole mess of problems, friends. Skip a few centuries there to the postmodern world. That's where we are today. Postmodernism is how we would describe our current culture. What is the gospel of our current culture? What is the postmodern gospel? Well, it's a product of the Enlightenment. The departure from Scripture as the defining and authoritative rule and subsequently the elevation of human reason has led to the moral relativism that is so prevalent in our age today. The gospel of the postmodern world is moral relativism. You do what you want to do. You do what you want to do. You do what you want to do. I'll do what I want to do. We all do what we want to do, and everything will be okay. Don't get in my way. I won't get in your way. Don't get in her way. Don't get in his way. We just all do you. What is true to you is true to you. What's true to me is true to me. There are no moral absolutes. Everything is subjective and up to your own determination as to what is right and what is wrong. Do you see what the postmodern world has done? It has, now, 
I'm just using language here. This obviously has not been done. But we have tried to strip God from his throne and elevate ourselves and take a seat there. Now I determine truth. I do what I want to do. That's the postmodern world. That's the postmodern gospel that is so prevalent in our day. Moral relativism. Paul, Paul wrote in first, or I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, he said, The wrath of God, God's righteous, just judgment is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. That is the grim picture of the world that we live in today. Truth suppressors. I suppress the objective truth and I hold high my subjective truth. God says no. For what can be known about me is plain to you. Because I've shown it to you. God is a self-disclosing God. He's a self-revealing God. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen or clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world so that all men are without excuse. In other words, we can suppress the truth all day long. But at the end of the day, we're culpable. At the end of the day, we're guilty. As charged. And just as Luther began to realize before he was converted, no amount of striving is sufficient to appease a thrice holy God. It leaves us conflicted and troubled in soul. Thus was born sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. The Reformation principle of sola scriptura has to do, again, primarily with the sufficiency and the authoritativeness, the supreme authority of Scripture in all matters. Sola scriptura simply means that all truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is either taught explicitly or implicitly in the Bible. Sola scriptura teaches that all truth necessary for our salvation and our growth in Christ, our sanctification, is either taught explicitly or implicitly in the Scripture. Now, it's important to note that the doctrine of sola scriptura, or the authority and sufficiency of God's Word, does not mean that Scripture speaks about everything. There are many subjects upon which Scripture is silent, and Sola Scriptura makes no claim to the contrary. Nor does Sola Scriptura state that everything that Jesus did, or everything the apostles did, or everything that Jesus said or the apostles said and taught is preserved in Scripture. As a matter of fact, at the very end of John's Gospel, John chapter 21, John writes this. He says, there are also many things that Jesus did and said. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So Sola Scriptura does not say, does not teach, does not espouse that the Bible speaks about everything. What it does teach, what it does espouse, is that everything that is needed for life and godliness, this side of eternity, is either taught implicitly or explicitly in the Scriptures. God has not left us wanting in any way, shape, or form. 
Everything necessary, everything binding on our consciences, everything that God requires of us is given to us in Scripture. Again, 2 Peter 1.3 is a, is a phenomenal text here. Peter tells us that his, God's divine power, has granted to us everything or all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's what we mean when we say the sufficiency of Scripture. Okay? Scripture doesn't tell us much about the DNA strand. Scripture doesn't tell us much about the constellations in the sky. But it doesn't mean that Scripture is insufficient. Scripture is sufficient in that it teaches us everything we need to know about life and godliness this side of eternity. There are lots of things that God has not revealed to us. And we don't need to know those things for life and godliness this side of eternity. If we would focus more on the things that God has revealed than the things God hasn't revealed, I think we would be much more profitable at the end of the day anyway. A.W. Pink writes this. Actually, I'll save that for a few minutes here. You got your pen with you? Here's where you can start taking some notes. God's word is inspired. And it speaks with authority. God's word is inspired and it speaks with authority. What I want to do for the remaining time that we have is is tease out the implications of Sola Scriptura. What, What does it mean for us? How does it apply to us? Well, God's word is inspired and it speaks with authority. If you've got your Bible there on your lap, look back at it for just a moment. Look beginning in verse 14. This is Paul writing to Timothy, his son in the faith, who went on to be a teacher, preacher of the word. Look at verse 14, chapter 3. But as for you, continue on on in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise. They're sufficient for, they're profitable for, able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture, not some Scripture, not parts of Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Your translation may say, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's Word is inspired. And what that means, friends is that God's word speaks with authority. Theonustos, God breathed, God exhaled. God isn't taking in any words. God is the one that's breathing them out. And as such, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 that every other mouth is silenced before him. God is the one speaking. He's the one communicating. He is the one who has all authority. His word is God-breathed. Now, let's deal with a few issues here. If God's word is God-breathed, how does that square with the fact that God used human authors to write his word? God did use human authors to write and collate His word, scripture, absolutely. But those human authors were under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. Peter tells us this in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. Hey friends, when God speaks, listen up. 
You've heard me say this before. When, when Jesus in the gospel says, truly, truly, I say to you, that's like saying, really, really, get this, get this. Don't miss this, don't miss this. Ears up, ears up. Listen, listen. When God speaks, listen. You would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke, or men wrote, from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Did God use human authors? You better believe it. Were those human authors superintended by the Holy Spirit? You better believe it. In that sense, we can say that Scripture has a dual authorship. The theological phrase, if, if you're so inclined to go do some, some reading here, which I would encourage you to do, is verbal plenary inspiration. Speaks to a dual authorship of Scripture. God wrote Scripture. Paul wrote Romans. God also wrote Romans through Paul. Paul was superintended by the Holy Spirit when he sat down and put the tip of pen to paper or parchment and wrote the letters that he wrote. So did all of the authors of Scripture. Now, here's what we have to, to know here, is that while God superintended the authorship of Scripture, he did not compromise the humanness of its authors. In other words, God did not override the individual personalities, experiences, thought processes, and, vo and vocabulary of, of Scripture's human authors. That, that's, why, that's why you will see Paul's writing has a very distinct Pauline flair to it. Peter writes in a very distinct way. Luke is a physician. When you read his gospel, he's concerned with details, connecting the dots. Why? It's because it's the way he's wired up. And God used the uniqueness, the individual personalities, experiences, uh, thought processes, and, and vocabulary of the human authors. But on the other hand, the process of inspiration included God's work of safeguarding the human writers so that they did not err when they were writing his word. Word after word, sentence after sentence. Authoritative. You see, the Bible is not a collection of the wisdom and thoughts and insights of man. Even godly men. It's God's truth. His own word in his own words. The psalmist declared in Psalm 119, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. means that Scripture possesses primary authority and final authority. The Scriptures are the final court of appeals on all doctrinal and moral matters. However good they may be in giving guidance, all fathers, all popes, all councils, all pastors, all Bible study leaders are fallible. Only the Bible is infallible. Jesus and the apostles believe this. As a matter of fact, the, the phrase, it is written, appears some 90 times in the New Testament. I mean, Jesus and his disciples would categorize what is about to come next by prefacing it with the statement, it is written. In other words, we, we stand firm on the authority of what has been written before. And it's still true today. God's Word is not an outdated book that has run its course. It is still just as much true today as it was the day that its original authors penned it. It is just as relevant to us 
to our personal lives, to our culture, to the world that we live in today as it was in the day that its original authors penned their letters. We're not looking for something new. We're not looking for something higher. We're not looking for something better. We're not looking for something that suits the culture better today. The whole problem with today is that we have derailed from the, from the sufficiency and the authority of the Bible. Jesus used the phrase, it is written three times in his interaction with Satan when he was being tempted there in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus believed the authority of Scripture. It's interesting to note, too, we discover amazing proof of divine inspiration of the Scriptures in the fact that the authors of the Bible are painted in their true colors. Track with me for a second here. I think there is a phenomenal argument for divine inspiration in the fact that the biblical authors are written in their true colors. In other words, the characters, the heroes, so to speak, of the Bible are faithfully depicted. The sins of its most prominent persons are frankly recorded. It's human to err, but it's also human to conceal the blemishes of those that we admire. Had the Bible been a human production, friends, had it been written by uninspired historians, the defects of its leading characters would most likely have been ignored or not recorded at all. Because we tend to speak highly of ourselves, right? Paul tells us Romans 12.3. You probably know Romans 12.2. You know Romans 12.3? Do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought, but think of yourselves with sober judgment according to the measure of grace that has been given to you. It is our natural disposition to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And so if Scripture were just a compilation of human authors, don't you think that we would have written ourselves in it a whole lot differently? But the Bible seems to go to great lengths. God seems to go to great lengths to show us the fallenness of every biblical character. Why? So that we wouldn't be tempted to look to those biblical characters as the capital E exemplar or capital M uh, model, but that we would look to the Lord Jesus Christ as the perfect model. The Bible is different than any other book. The writer of Hebrews describes it as being living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces down to the soul. It divides joint and marrow thoughts and the intentions. I mean, it gets, it gets all in our hearts and exposes the mess out of us. And that's a great thing. That's a great thing. God's word is inspired and thus it speaks with authority. Number two, write this down. God's word is inerrant and thus it speaks truthfully. God's word is inerrant and it speaks truthfully. The doctrine of biblical inerrancy is an extremely important doctrine because truth matters. This issue reflects one of the characteristics of, of God here. God's word must speak truthfully because God is truthful. In all his dealings, God is upright. He has integrity. He speaks truthfully. Therefore, his word is truthful. The Bible itself claims to be perfect. As a matter of fact, the psalmist writes this in Psalm 12, and the word of the Lord's are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. Flawless, the psalmist says. Psalm 19, the, the law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm, or Proverbs 30, every word of God is pure. You see, these claims of purity and perfection are absolute statements. 
Note that we don't say God's word is mostly pure or scripture is nearly perfect. We say that scripture is infallibly true and perfectly perfect. God's character is connected to it. The Bible argues for complete perfection. We believe that the God who created the universe is capable of writing a book. And not only is he capable of writing a book, but he's capable of superintending the writing of that book. And not only is he capable of superintending the writing of that book, he's, he's faithful and capable to preserve that work down through redemptive history. The issue is not simply, does the Bible have a mistake? The issue is, can God make a mistake? And if the answer to that question is no, then the Bible contains none. God cannot make a mistake. Lots of things God can do. Three things God cannot do. He can't lie, die, or deny himself. Outside of that, Psalm 115.3 reigns supreme. Our Lord is in heaven, our God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. That is perfect in all his ways. If the Bible contains factual errors, then God is not omniscient and God is not capable of preserving his word. If the Bible contains misinformation, then God is not truthful but instead is a liar. If the Bible contains contradictions, then God is the author of confusion. In other words, if biblical inerrancy is not true, then God is not God. God's word is inerrant and therefore it speaks truthfully. If God's word is not true in its entirety, then we are left to question whether God's word is true in any of its respective parts. And that is not the case. Number three, God's word is clear and speaks to be heard. God's word is clear and speaks to be heard. Let me teach you an eight-cylinder word here, friends. Perspicuity. The doctrine of perspicuity it just means the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. The doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. This was one of the main tenets of the Reformers. Luther taught against the Roman Catholic Church, uh, taught against their claim that the Bible was too obscure and too difficult for the common man to understand. That, that's why you, you have in, in, in Roman Catholic history, in Catholic Church history, you have no real emphasis upon the individual's reading and applying and studying the Word of God. That is reserved for the priest. He does that. You just sit and listen to what he says. No, friends, we would say, be a Berean. Study your Bible. Pour over your Bible. Pray over your Bible. Read good books from trusted authors about the Bible. Always a secondary material. But know your Bible, study your Bible, embrace your Bible, embody your Bible, hide your Bible in your heart and your mind that you might not sin against God. Luther, Luther taught and the Reformers taught that the Bible is clear. It's clear enough that it can be understood by the common man. Uh, it, it is clear enough that it can, it can be understood by a child. At, at least in its most important parts. You know, is, is, a, is, a, is a child going to assimilate the information of eschatological perspectives, things to come? Probably not. 
But a child can understand the simplicity of the overarching message of the Bible, which is that God is holy and just, and he's a missionary God. When we sinned, when we failed, when we missed the mark, he sent his son to die on Calvary's cross. Jesus did that. He did it successfully. He was dead, buried, three days, rose victorious over sin and death, and he sits exalted at the right hand of the throne of the Father today. A child can understand that message. As a matter of fact, if we're not preaching that message to our children, woe to us. We see all throughout Scripture what happens when one generation fails to communicate the gospel to the next generation. You have a lawless next generation. The Bible itself proclaims its own clarity. Again, let me, let me take you back to parents and children here. Deuteronomy chapter 6 exhorts parents to teach the Scriptures to their children, indicating that they can be understood by children. The New Testament confirms this when the Apostle Paul encourages Timothy to continue in the things that he has known from the Holy Scriptures from childhood. That's, that's in our text here. Look back at verses 14 and 15. Hold firmly to, the, to that which you believed. Hold firmly to what you've learned from your childhood, knowing that you are acquainted well with the Holy Scriptures. Psalm 19 declares, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now, the perse- boy, time flies when you're having fun. The perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture, we're going to land the plane here, does not mean that everything in the Bible is perfectly clear. Amen? Amen from your pastor. Okay? But rather the essential teachings of Scripture are clear. Popularly put, in the Bible, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. Okay? Not to say that, that all parts of Scripture are easily understood or easily interpreted, but the essential content and message are clear and lucid. And when we get to places in Scripture where there seems to be some rub or there seems to be some discontinuity or unclarity, just remember that God is his own interpreter. Okay? Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Go ahead and submit now in humility that if there is a tension or a rub in Scripture, that it is one that exists in our own fallible hearts and minds and not in the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. Go ahead and decide that now. That way you don't come to Scripture with all of your own presuppositions. God is His own interpreter. Fourth and lastly here, God's Word is sufficient and therefore it is enough. It's sufficient and therefore is enough. The word profitable, Paul uses that word here. All scripture is God-breathed and it is useful or sufficient or profitable. The word profitable there has the idea of helpful or serviceable or advantageous. Colossians 2 deals with the, the dangers that a church faces when the sufficiency of Scripture is challenged and merged together with non-biblical writings full of ungodly theology and concepts, you know, you may wonder from time to time. As a matter of fact, in, in, in the last two and a half years that, that I have been here, I have had numerous individuals, and I'm so thankful for this, come and say, Pastor, you know, what do you think about this author? Or what do you think about that study? And there are some that, that I can affirm with, with absolute integrity and wholeheartedness and say, boy, that's good stuff. And there are some, because I'm a shepherd, I, I want to help you understand there's some bones there. And so if you're going to study that, if you're going to read that author, just know that on the outset. 
And be prepared to eat the meat and spit out the bones. Paul warned the church at Colossae, Colossians chapter tw- uh, 2. There aren't 12 chapters in Colossians. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Jude says it even more specifically when he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to you once and for all. The Bible is sufficient. It is enough. It is enough. Perhaps one of the strongest verses, passages rather, that deals with the sufficiency of the Bible comes from Psalm chapter 19. Verses 7 through 11. Our small group studied this this last Wednesday evening. The psalmist writes this, The law of the Lord, it's perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also are they than honey. Honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Sufficient. God's word is sufficient. It's enough. The sufficiency of Scripture is under attack today. Sadly, all too often this comes from within the walls of the church instead of without, uh, from, from without let me show you how this happens. We, we tend to use worldly methods of drawing crowds. We tend to set up our worship services more, uh, more like an entertainment venue. Smoke and mirrors and lights. and You see it in extra-biblical revelations. You see it in the mysticism that is prevalent today. Uh, God spoke to me. God told me. Those kind of things. God has told you, friends. Read your Bible. Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. He's told us everything that we need for life and godliness. He's not revealing anything else to anybody else today. It does not come explicitly from his word. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they hear me and they follow me. His voice is all we need to hear. And the scriptures are his voice completely, utterly, and sufficiently. Friends, let me conclude here. Dr. Michael Kruger says this, in order to lead the church back to sola scriptura, which is what we need, we, we need to move towards a, another reformation. We are, we are light years away from the reformation of Luther's day. We've gone through the enlightenment, the postmodern world. We need another reformation, which must begin with the church turning back to sola scriptura. We must realize that we can't do anything by our own teaching. Instead, the primary way that we lead the church back is by actually preaching the scriptures. How do you do it? Well, you just open the word and you rightfully and faithfully divide it and you teach it for what it says. Helping your people know that God's word is authoritative. It's, it's authoritative uh, over everything else, including your and my feelings. We get back to Sola Scriptura by preaching the scriptures and preaching the scriptures Alone, Not picking and choosing the parts we prefer or think our congregations want to hear. We must preach only the word, sola scriptura, and we must preach all the word, tota scriptura. Those two go hand in hand, and when they're joined together, 
the power of the Holy Spirit, we can have hope for a new reformation. I want to encourage you to come back next week as we look at sola gratia, by grace alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you that it is uh, authoritative. Thank you that it is clear. Thank you that it is sufficient. Thank you that it is inerrant and truthful, that we can trust in every word of it. God, help us to do so more and more, that your son may be glorified in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.